Welcome back to another episode of Season 5 of the RAG Podcast. As you guys know by now, this is the number one podcast across the recruitment sector globally. And we've always been on a mission to help recruitment agencies grow by interviewing founders and telling their stories of success from startup all the way to scale up and exit. Well, this season, we're a little bit different. How do you, as a recruitment leader and founder, maintain your family and friendships whilst being the best person at work? How do you stay physically fit mentally and emotionally? And how do you find time for yourself in the madness? How do you find time for self-interest, for hobbies and self-improvement? Well, to help you with this, I'm going to be interviewing someone every single week that can demonstrate experience in one or more of these areas. So I'm going to talk to recruitment founders and also some experts from outside the industry who can deep dive into things like relationships and health and well-being. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Rag Podcast. I'm uh, I'm super excited as always. I'm always excited, but we are. Well, I'm joined today by someone who I, I met a couple of years ago and I've kept an eye on. One of the most, uh, I'd say one of the most recognizable and, um, what's the word? One of the most distinctive brands in the recruitment market, I'd say, the way that they've gone about it. And it's a guy called Chris Sheard, who's the founder of Socially Responsible Recruitment, SR2 Recruitment. These guys donate 5% of all operating profit to charity and have chosen um, different charities each year. Um, Chris is now four and a half years old as a business, over 50 staff. They've got an office in London, in Bristol is headquartered, about 38. They've got a growing team in London, and now they're opening in the middle of this year in ta- in Austin, in Texas, in the USA. Um, his story is, is pretty similar to a lot of people before, although this is the second time he looked to start an agency. The first time he quit his job and his business partner took a counter offer and went and didn't leave. And then he, he then spent three years working elsewhere before he did it again. He took the time to do it properly by himself. Um, and, you know, Chris is a, Chris is, is a very, he's a, he's a classic recruitment owner in, in his story, but he's not classic in the way that he thinks. I don't know anyone else who's from the start built a brand around sustainability and the environment and charity and, and donated and thought about being um, B Corp certified, which is a certification that shows you are build, doing things for the better of the environment. And you're trying to help others rather than just build a profitable business for yourself. And, and it's the biggest impact of, of this, of this approach to his brand has been the ability to attract experienced recruiters. So nearly all of his staff are experienced recruiters that he's brought in from elsewhere and, he finds it relatively easy, he says, to get people in. Um, and that's because people recognize the business and they they buy into the message. They love the, the message. They want to be part of something different and special on a mission, very clear about their, their where they're heading. Um, and to me, that's really unique because in today's market, nearly everyone I speak to is struggling to find experienced hires and they have to go to the graduate space. So it's a completely different approach to the same problem. Um, right, let's get into... This episode, without further ado, Chris, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thank you. Nice to meet you. 
I know, mate. I know. Have we actually ever met before? Did we meet in the, my office in London once? We did, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we met there and kind of passed passing glance at the expo recently. Yeah, yeah. But you do, you came in to meet Hishem, I think. You sat down with Hishem when you were on his podcast in 2018, uh, and that was 18, Alicia, 19. Yeah, Alicia. We were about like a year old on, on yours. So I was... Uh, yeah. I played taxi driver, basically. 2018-19, like time. Uh, 18 and 18, I think, yeah. Yeah, fuck me, that's gone fast. Like, it seems like a, in a way, it has, and in a way, it seems like a lifetime ago. You know, um, it's mental. But look, Chris, I've given a little introduction to you, but for the listeners' benefit, please, can you just give us the bird's eye view of you, the business, the headcount, like what you look like today, and then we'll go backwards to the start. Cool. Um, yeah, so we are Chris Shears, kind of MD owner, dog's body of SR two, which stands for socially responsible recruitment. So we're just over four years old, coming up four and a half years old as a business. Uh, started in Bristol, opened in London in January this year, opened in Austin, June, July, depending on the kind of visa situation. So two offices at the moment, 54 headcount, um, B Corp certified, one of only eight B Corp certified agencies in the UK. Um, I'm do IT, IT and engineering with the focus. Wow. So... That's pretty pretty good going in that time frame, mate, to be over 50 heads by now. I know a lot of businesses who never make 50 heads, never mind in, inside for four and a half years. Um, what um, what I'd like to go back to is the start. So you you started just after me. So I launched Hoxo in the March of 17 and you you are the October. Yeah. Um, so when when did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Let's go back a bit further than that. When, when, when did the whole idea of being your own boss come into your mind and life? Uh, always, I've always wanted to do it for sure. And um, so I did. I did nearly do it about three, four years, about four years prior. Um, yeah. And kind of left. I'd, I'd gone as far as setting a business up and coming. So sure, he took a counter offer and stayed put. I was kind of in that oh. stage where I'd, I'd gone. I was. I'd checked out. So I was. I was out there, and it was like back to the bank manager. A bit like kind of goalposts have changed slightly. Two's now become one. Um, and then I just had a bit of a you know, decision to make. Do I do I fly solo? I've been in that business for six years. Kind of the only people I knew were within that company as well. So it just didn't feel like the right time. There's too much going on. It was all getting a bit bit messy, to be fair. So I took another job for three and a half years as a as a sales manager. So it kind of to be honest, for me gave me that confidence to run my own shop in theory, but on someone else's money. It was a corporate world versus startup world that I've been in previously. So I had that kind of Kind of different different backgrounds to, to absorb and, and learn from as well. So in hindsight, wow. it's the best thing that ever happened to me. But I've always wanted to do it. I always knew that the, the role I took was going to be a stopgap. In reality, it was just kind of I was there three and a half years. It was probably longer than I thought I would be. But then it got to kind of I had two and a half years really really good in the corporate company, and then it, which was around start, and then the last twelve months less less so <coughs> change of MD. We collapsed. We were on kind of different different pages in terms of you know, right. business and what to do. So it's kind of gave me that kick up the ass. I was thirty five at the time, and then it was like, I'm either ever going to do it now, or I'm, or I'm going to be like <laughs> over the hill. <laughs> Points of it now, another kind of thing. So I've just had a baby. I just had the first child at the time as well. So maybe timing wasn't the best, but it was just like it got kind of almost unbearable. Where what did he say? They say change occurs when the fear of staying the same becomes greater than the fear of the change. So you kind of, that, that sounds true to you. You'd get the point where it was like, I've got to do it because the thought of carrying on. Um, yeah. What, what, oh, Siri's kicking it. What did it, 
What did it feel like though when your partner pulled out? That's an interesting one. I'm not not heard that on the show. I don't think before. See, I imagine you went through a pretty long process with this guy. If you took a bank loan out, like how long were you planning it for? Um, oh, it's, it's one of those things like you know, like everyone's got mates and agencies, and you, you're talking you know, over beers and pubs, you're talking about it for ages. Like those conversations are clearly rife in our industry. So we've been discussing it for ages, and I think I'd. I went to London to open what was at the time Opus's second office, or our first office outside of Bristol. Um, yeah. so, and I did kind of 18 months in London. And also, it just didn't, I didn't like London, I didn't settle very well. Um, and then when I came back, I came back on a bit of a whim, to be fair. Like my landlord suddenly sent a letter through saying, I'm selling the place, you need to get out. And I'd, I was 18 months in. And in my head, I was like, I want to do, I don't like London, but I, for some reason, I wanted to do two years. So I was like, I had like two weeks where I was like mad panic trying to find a tenancy for six months in London just to say I've done two years. And then that was hard work trying to find anywhere in London for six months because they're all 12 months. Like, why, why would yeah, you yeah. sign for six? So I then had like a couple of weeks of panic, like it's not going to happen. So I kind of moved back like really quickly. And then I got back to Bristol. The goalposts had changed in Bristol in terms of roles naturally. We start to talk about opportunities in Bristol, what I could look at, like, and ultimately nothing we were talking about, just almost like creating roles, like all sorts of weird and wonderful things, trying to almost like find a solution for me. Um, and nothing appealed. So then those those kind of pub conversations got a bit more um substantial, should we say, and we were like, all right, we'll we'll do it. So yeah, it all happened quite quickly, but yeah, ultimately we'd resigned on a Sunday together to try and minimize that disruption in the office. Um was in there like five hours. I did it on Sunday. Yeah, had a good a good booze up on a Sunday. How did you do it on a Sunday? Did you just ask your bosses to meet you in the morning. Like? Yeah, we just yeah. We you know that's bad news if someone says meet me on <laughs> yeah, Sunday. Exactly, yeah, that's yeah. never gonna be. We want to nah. thank you for something like it's fucking bad news. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, we thought we we're doing a favour to be fair, but it's probably quite a, quite brutal <laughs> Sunday. But yeah, that was that, that was it. So yeah, it was tough. So, like, so then what happened? So how did he take the counter off of us? He, he, he's quit with you. Sunday night, you go for a beer together. You're excited. And then what, Monday, you did he make Monday. you go back to work? Uh, no, nah, Monday, looking at offices, um, like final stage, looking at offices and stuff. I mean, obviously, like, I lived in Somerset at the time. He was living in Bristol. So we, when we were, like, best mates, I was best mates, wasn't it? So we were, um, it was, yeah, it was tricky. We were, like, communicating a lot. And then Tuesday, just things went quiet. Like was well, like quite like, quite silent. Things went silent, and then it, well, I got to choose. And I was like, it's a bit weird. Like I've not heard anything yeah. but unanswered things. And then, yeah, long story short, I had an email like midnight saying, "Yeah, difficult email. You probably never want to talk to me again." But I've uh, I feel like I've backed into a corner. I need to take this counter off, or I'm going to stay put. So um, that was. Did that. you see that? Were you completely blindsided then? You didn't expect? Oh yeah, totally, totally, totally. Wow. Yeah. Did Did you speak to him again? Never, no. Wow, wow, <laughs> that is uh, that's brutal. But did you, did you did you sulk for a bit? Like, did you feel like fucking hell? What am I going to do? Or did you snap into kind of reaction um, mode? So I don't think I did. Like, I called. Yeah, I was calling at midnight after the email. I was thinking in my head, I'll be I'll be able to kind of turn this around in reality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't get answers on that evening. The it was like midnight. Um, didn't get answers. Called again in the morning. No answer. Called his wife. No answer. Um, so I had to snap out of it quite quickly. That was that was kind of that was kind of dead. I'm probably quite brutal in terms of cutting things off. So I was like, right, 
yeah, you're right. I'm, I am not going to talk to you again, and I need to kind of decide what I'm going to do. So I was more worried about myself because of like I'm now out of the job. I don't know what I'm doing. So then I start to think like, as I said, my options were go on my own, but I've worked within that business for six years. Everyone I knew that I'd kind of want to try and attract him. It's all getting a bit messy in terms of kind of legal stuff as well. So just like I need to kind of put that to bed and think for myself in terms of what my best option was. And then so this this corporate opportunity. I've been tapped up for it about six months previously. Um, and then I kind of reached back out. I did some other interviews around the Bristol markets as other companies I respect and, and, and kind of looked at what, at what was out there. Both taking that role in the corporate company, but also like in that role, for example. So I was what a year into that role. My first hire was Alicia that we were talking about at the start. I was on, on, on your podcast back in 2018. So when I was rebuilding the the, the, the role at Randstad was basically inherit a tech team. It wasn't doing very well. It had like 12, yeah. 13 employees. They had a lot of tech in London, tech in Bristol. London was doing okay. Bristol was doing average. And it was like, where are they arguably going to shut this down? Or we kind of rebuild and give you carte blanche to go at it. So it was a total rebuild job. So I took kind of 12 people down to four or five quite quickly. Um, and then it was just rebuilding. And in that rebuilding process, Alicia was the first person I hired in the rebuild. She was working for a like four or five man outfit in Bristol that were just you know, not not up to it basically. So she was my first hire. I then said to her like anyone else in that business is any good. She recommended Nath. I then went after Nath, who was my second hire. Both of those two are now kind of co-founders. I took with me to start SR2, and then on a night out with Alicia celebrating her birthday in her first year it was the night I met my now wife. So wow, so like little things like happen. I look back now and I think like actually. If I, I would have never gone to Randstad ever if that hadn't happened to me, and I wouldn't have then met Tigo, I wouldn't have then arguably met my yeah, wife. Yeah. Actually, it all, everything happens for reasons, it all worked out like good in the end. But yeah, it's mad, isn't it? I lost it's mad. Life. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did it the opposite way of you. I started at Randstad in Australia and then I moved to a startup, but I, I, and I think they're a great, well, well, shit, great training place. Um, but I think the balance of working in two types of organization is quite clever before you start a business because you've seen, more than just being completely institutionalized um yeah. so okay so then when did sr2 and how did it how did that form and you know the name everything tell us a story how did that come yeah from? um so i was i was always going to do it um as, as i said before so i i was literally on holiday reading a book I'd, I'd literally hit that point where kind of without realizing i was getting stressed like my, you know, having left my wife was like Oh my god, like you need to like sort yourself out because I was I'd gone very like insular. I was probably struggling mentally with stress and I just wasn't happy. It was a slog getting out of work and getting or getting out of bed and getting into work. Um I was we were on holiday. I bought a book, I didn't know what where I got the book, why I bought a book in particular, but I bought, bought a book called People Labour Profit, which is um yeah. ultimately inspired the business. So I got a Dale Partridge, owns a company called Seventy, they donate seven dollars they make hoodies t-shirts etc seven dollars of the sales goes to a charity that's on the hoodies and they change that every seven days and like very successful american business so i was reading that and just i guess it all just that was kind of my moment where things started to complete i was like how can i translate that into an it recruitment company and then as a literature i can remember i read it once on holiday then i was like went and got a highlighter pen whilst on holiday Read it again and I'm not scribbling, write it. And then I was like making notes on my phone, 
Then I got some really shit branding app. I was trying yeah. to create a new guy whilst on holiday. Um, oh, wow. And that, like, like from that moment, I was like, right, I know what I'm going to do now. And then I could just like bring it to life. I went back to the same the same bank manager that had given us the loan previously with me and my friends. Obviously, I had to go back to him and let him down the first time around. So I kind of, I guess, mentally, I wanted to kind of prove to him or repay him um, for letting. What's the loan? What was the loan for? Like, because a lot of people don't. You know, they, they they save cash and they just use their own money. What what was your loan? What was the point of the loan? Um, to, 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 to pay for staff, just to give me a bit a bit of runway, basically. So I, I, I borrowed eighty grand against my house. Um, we just had a little work done to our house at home, so I kind of had to talk to the wife second time around and been like, I need to secure the as a secure the loan against the house. Is that okay? <laughs> um, number one. So yeah, did that. Went back to the same guy. He had it signed off, and then it was a case of just timing more than anything. I think I had to set the company up in February, and which is a bit in advance of when I actually want to start. It was on company's house from February, didn't actually start until the 23rd of October. So there's a bit of a lag there where I think he, in light of me letting him down last time, needed me to, I guess, evidence. So I was actually going to go through with it. And I was serious about a second time around, which, which was fair enough. So, so when did you leave Ramsdam? Was it in the February or in the, in the nah, October? So, yeah, it all, got, it all got a little bit murky to be fair around that because I think in reality, in hindsight, they obviously had some sort of company's house alert thing set up. So, yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, Christian, my address, setting up a company. But instead of like, what they should have done and what any kind of normal communicator would have just had a conversation with me going, I don't know, I haven't seen this, like what's going on. But instead, there was suddenly a bit of a change of hierarchy. Someone new came in above me. There's another layer put in. And yeah. It kind of felt like oh, so they didn't they didn't even have an active conversation they just like no, worked, no, worked no with conversation it. it was just like right there's this new person in charge there's a new lay you've got now reporting to this person and within like two weeks i was getting like new targets put in place and it just got a bit fractured in reality and i knew what was going on they knew what was going on no one talked about it and it was yeah it's a difficult six months probably in reality but again i was I had my own agenda in terms of what I was going to do and when I was ready to start, etc. And, and they they had theirs, so it was yeah, it was, a, it was a difficult time for sure. And looking back, without saying too. You say you took you took two people with you as co-founders, and the three of you sat there. Um, nah, so I had a three month notice, so I hadn't told anyone I was I was going. Um, and then eventually I resigned. Um, and, you know, Alicia Nathan in the business. There was a lot of people that were clearly still within the business that I'd hired. So I, I rebuilt that from four people up to about 37 people in the first two and a half years so it could grow quite rapidly but there were people the vast majority of the business i'd hired um so there was a, obviously once i'd gone you know naturally i guess a byproduct of that people people then start to peter out of that business and, and leave um i say the culture had changed massively it turned very kind of kpi micromanagey um, very like heavy data driven, which which ultimately wasn't how I'd run it in the two and a half years previous. So there was a, there was massive disconnect with the, with the team versus the, the business in any way. So once I'd gone, you know, people had left. So Alicia and Nathan in particular, and, and another guy called Steve that worked for me there, he was our top perm guy. He'd left about six. He'd actually left before I did. And um, so people had moved out from that business. So they they'd actually gone elsewhere. And then once I'd kind of sat up, they were like, "What are you actually going to do now?" And then, and that's kind of it. It kind of spun from there, basically. So, how many people did you have on day one then, when with, with uh, the loan and the rest four, of four of us? Oh. Yeah, so it's four. Right. All, all three of those are principal consultants. I hadn't been on the tools for like four years, five years myself. So I was um, kind of 
from blowing the cobwebs off the train. Um, what was that? Guess. What was that like? What was that like going back to the start with? Because that was—I'll be honest—that was one of the major reasons I think I didn't start Hoxo as a recruitment company. Like it was always planned. We planned for two and a half years, and I changed the decision right at the end. And my business partner was like, "What?" And I was like, "I want to do this." But I think because I'd been off the tools for so long. Not as long as you, only like two years, but I don't know. I just wasn't that excited by going back to it. Whereas, you know, you did it. What was it like? Um, you, you, what, you kind of brought your sleeves up. You kind of had to, didn't you? So I wasn't going to be like, sit sit there, hands off with three principal consultants just cracking on and around. So like, I wouldn't have got away with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, you're, obviously, you're, you're, you're hungry, you're excited. And the first, like, you're, you're still to this day I am, but... You just do what you got to do, basically. So I, I actually managed, and I always kind of remind to this day, to do the first deal bizarrely. Um, so I was, I was like first person to write up on the board, like our very first deal with an SR two, like some some little four grand deal I'd done in some client in Oxford. So I think I, I like did it right. I got to like nine months in. Um, I was never even even in my open days, I'm by no means a decent bill, like a big bill. I got to principal consultant, but I was never certain the world of light. It wasn't yeah. really my. My, my strength in reality so I did certainly hands-on for probably eight or nine months and then we kind of start to flip when things start to move quite quickly I was focused more on hiring and doing the back office stuff and, and all the operational stuff which was perhaps more my bag. So what how did that first six months go then in terms of revenue and deals how did the team perform? Good. So we did seven, just over seven. I think it was seven seven five in year one GP wise. It was like wow. six six hundred eighty something perm, and then a little bit of contract, just like byproduct of our perm clients in reality. But yeah, we did seven 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 five in our first year, which and finished the year off seven, seven or eight staff headcount wise. That's pretty good, it was, isn't it? Yeah, solid. I would have, yeah took that for sure. Yeah, and what what were the what were the things you learned? from Opus and Randstad that you brought in, do you think, in terms of the processes? Because what one of the things about this podcast is it, you know, a lot of there's a lot of potential startups and startups listening. And a lot of people say in the in the early days it's chaotic, you know, really chaotic. And for someone to get to 50 staff in the time you've got, I imagine you had a you were thinking about that at the beginning. Like you weren't just yeah. whacking deals in and that you know you probably had a bit of a bigger picture, I think. So what did what sort of processes did you put in early on? enabled you to move out of the way in nine months um i think definitely helped because the plan was always we haven't kind of started the four of us and like there was no like idea let's just see how this goes i was very clear in terms of i want to scale the business of, of, of some size and reality so i think with that being the plan i was and, and i was very clear with those you know three from the outset in terms of their roles that you know they're very good salespeople do really good numbers that was their strength it was never going to be my strength so i think the fact i was kind of moving off the tools quite quickly enabled me to be a bit more strategic and a bit operational and like just grow the business and focus on scaling it quite quickly so i so said we've pretty much kind of doubled year on year and as i said in reality kind of certainly seven eight months i was pretty much kind of fully hands off so i think the, the like general process in terms of Markets, vertical markets, per contract, etc. That was all like stuff that everyone should, you know, certainly should be doing. Pretty much all does in reality. So I don't think there's anything like a standout process we put in place which enabled us. I think it was just like we had a plan, we delivered on that plan effectively. So that yeah, they were clear. There was never like, hang on, I mean, why are you not on the tools and rolling your sleeves right. up and doing the deals? Like they they knew what was going to happen. They knew what was expected. We just stuck to the plan basically. And how often did you communicate that plan, would you say, in the early days? 
I still do to this day. I'm pretty regular. Like we do like monthly sales meetings. I'm very kind of transparent. We have leadership stuff quarterly, sales meetings, wider business on a monthly basis. We're like very transparent in terms of headcount targets. Yeah, I think you've got to make people aware of it because we've certainly, as we've grown, you know, particularly last year when we grew considerably, if you're not telling people and then all of a sudden there's a massive influx of people, then people are a bit like, like this is changing. Yeah. This is evolving. I'm not either not comfortable with this, or I wasn't aware of this. You kind of catch people off guard. So we're very transparent in terms of sharing like a lot of stuff on the internet of the business in reality. Probably overshare. Like that. That's, I don't think you can overshare. What What was the biggest challenge in year one? What do you think was the hardest pick? It sounds. I'll, I'll be honest. It sounds like you, it was quite easy for you. Like you just you know you you nailed it. What 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 was what was the hardest bit back then? Um. Yeah. So. I was actually thinking, I knew, I'd, I, I knew you'd ask the old challenge question. It's obviously challenging all the time. Um, I'd like, I, there was nothing in year one, where, like apart from you, you're going to get as many people as will get behind a startup and they, they kind of buy into your startup. We want to support you, we want to help you like locally. You'll you get as many people wanting to get involved in that and support you on that journey and get you going. But on the flip side, you will also get people that will take advantage of that. So. Yeah, you know, I had challenges operationally in terms of like invoices, or we had a couple of people that just completely like backdoored us and were like, "You're like four man band, you're not going to do anything." It was that that type of attitude. Yeah. So, but you're always going to get that. I don't think there's anything you can anything you can put in place to prevent that. It's almost just an acceptance that that is going to happen along the way, and just kind of get over it, move on, etc. So there, there, there was no like standout challenge in year one that we really struggled with. Hiring is obviously key. So yeah. Yeah, you're trying to convince people to join a four or five man band at the time. Yeah, that can be a challenging thing, but I think yeah, I'd say that's probably my main strength as a as a leader or as a, a of a business is hiring and, and interviewing and attracting people and kind of bringing that story to life and bringing that journey to life. So that yeah, that would be the obvious challenge. But I actually, think we did we did pretty well with that. I want to talk about today's sponsor. Now, I've mentioned Talent Ticker on many occasions so far since we started working with these guys in, in, in the early part of this year. Um, and if you're looking to stay ahead of your competition in 2022, they want to help you. So at the end of this month, any Hoxo listeners who request a demo of Talent Ticker will also receive a free personalized list of leads to help them get jump on the rest of the year. You know, it's the first recruitment intelligence platform that the world has ever seen. And it provides accurate contact information for both passive candidates which matches them to the companies looking to hire them. What's unique about Talentica is that they predict when a company will be hiring whilst giving you the projected hiring roles and contact info for the hiring manager. So any recruiter who uses this tool will call the right person at the right time for the right reason. It is literally um, trailblazing. It's brand new and it's going really well. So don't wait. Head over to get.talentica.ai forward slash Hoxo. Links are all in the comments of this episode and claim your free leads today. Go and get it. Bristol's got a really like good quality, close knit group of recruitment agencies, right? It's, it's outside of London. I think there's Manchester and Bristol probably stand out to me. What what would you what, what sort of talent were you going for? Were you going for people with experience? Were you going for people without? What was your strategy? Yeah, experience. Yeah, so that kind of we started to simpl- uh, supplement that with some trainees as well. Like only up until August last year was our first lot, so that our whole business is built on experienced recruiters. Um, just purely by design, I think we, we don't have time. I didn't have time to be sitting there coaching, supporting, playing that L and D role as well as 
doing the marketing, doing the back office, doing the finance and all the other operational stuff. So mm. yeah, that was by design. But I mean, that our first hire, I guess, experience for us could be different industries. It could be as little as like three months experience. As long as people have had those like the real baby steps of, you know, this is how you dial a phone, this is how you, know, how you talk to someone. I'll take those people and then those are the people that we can work with. So it's that real initial like kind of, I guess this is the phone, this is how you speak to someone. As long as that's covered, then that's kind of who we've targeted and who we've focused on. So right. second job's our sweet spot. Yeah. What was your what what was your sell back then? Like and you've got a if you've got someone with two years of recruitment experience who is in a bigger business or more established business, how how do you attract them at that at that point in your journey? I think you just got to bring to life what you're actually trying to do. Like I think with, with our business, our, our brand's pretty clear in terms of our purpose and our like what we're trying to do as a business. So it, it does stand out, it does differentiate yeah, for sure. Does. I think that certainly helps you've got a good story to tell. They've got kind of specific unique things that you can actually talk about and bring to life. Um, and I think ultimately you've got, you've got to try and identify those people that want to come on that sort of journey in a startup. So, so our first hire um, was a girl who worked not in tech, but had like about six months experience that, that came on board. So she was great in the early days. Our, our second hire was a guy, I went for a beer with someone I used to work for previously that ultimately let slip. Oh, but this guy is like five months in, he's going to be amazing. Um, like just uh, so like tapped it. I've never worked with him actually, but obviously straight on <laughs> straight on LinkedIn and a few beers over over about a month. I've managed to kind of hook him. He's still with the business now, so we had him like five months experience. Yeah, right. He's now yeah practice lead with us. Been with the business for you know, nearly four years now. Um, yeah, he's a classic case where like five months in had shown good signs, but maybe not set the world alight, but had shown promise absolute superstar like you'll probably build 500k this year for us runs runs arguably our biggest contract team in our in our busiest division and you know he's absolutely ambassador for the business now amazing amazing for you maybe not the guy you went for the beer with who dropped that information <laughs> yeah. I, I think after this people are going to be scared what they say to you like, yeah no yeah no one goes for beer with me anyway it's fun yeah stay away stay away um so how did all right so how did the business progress at the end of year one you got seven eight people You've become less operationally, the roles, the, the business is less reliant on your sales. You, you, you're stepping back, which again is a pretty impressive place to be in nine to 12 months. Not many, I know founders are nowhere near it in 10 years. So you've done that. How did that allow you to accelerate in year two with a, looking at the business rather than in the business? Um, well, that, that was fundamentally my job. So I said I was very transparent to communicate and our aim in like year two, for example, was to was to double headcount. So, yeah, I can't be saying that's the aim and I'm not delivering on that in reality. So that that, that, that was my job. And then obviously, as well as making sure we were kind of, our processes were good, the, the business ran smoothly. So I think as long as the business was running smoothly, we were growing, scaling at the right level, then yeah, that, that, that was my task in, in that year two. I, I still did lots of stuff from a client engagement, client meetings, and I was still you know, very much the face of getting in front of our clients and trying to build those like strategically from a, BD point of view, but I wasn't necessarily delivering on them in yeah. the back end, let's say. Um, so yeah, like year two, what did we do year two? I set the of 1.2, we ended up doing one point, just over 1.3 million, finished year two on 15, 15 headcount, I think it was. So we again like doubled, doubled that. It was you know, pretty positive, 1.3 million in, in our second year. GP wise was yeah, I was happy we'd done over a million perms. So it's still very much a perm driven business at that time. Um we yeah, it was, people do year two for sure amazing and 
you so we're taking that's what back end of 2019 so we're going towards i don't know if you remember that that period as well everyone i think everyone does because of what came early 2020 i remember end of 2019 early 2020 the market was really good like the market was fucking brilliant in january february 20 it was amazing february was my best month and everyone was promoting success and it was it felt and i don't know if you were like me you know you're two years in now you feel more established you're looking at your life your family everything's kind of set and then then the pandemic hits and how did how did that affect you guys what what was your initial response to what was going on um it was was obviously brutal so yeah we were exactly the same i think we'd had a really good start here in jan february was a record month like billings whiteboards everything was flying we'd kind of pushed the button on some hires as well and then obviously it, it hit so we i'd had like a couple of couple of weeks when people first started talking about them can specifically remember we had a girl in the office that was kind of flat out talking about it all the time and i was i was yeah looked pretty <laughs> so i'm not saying the right thing but it was a bit like oh yeah statistically more likely to get run over than you are dying <laughs> you know it's fine it's one of those type things and then and then there's that moment where like actually this is the thing like we need to kind of respond accordingly i my worst mistake in hindsight would certainly changed um to give myself a bit more breathing space and less stress but i that bank loan i'd taken was a three-year loan um and i'd also borrowed 40 grand off my dad so i'd had kind of yeah 120 to start the business with it was spread over three years i less i'd agreed to, to pay my dad back in less time but ultimately the bank loan was a three-year loan that i paid off in 18 months so i wanted to get as debt free as quickly as possible it was pretty less than that it was more like 14 months so i literally cleared that bank loan well in advance at the start of the year so my runway has kind of diminished massively once it kicked in i was like obviously naturally where's my cash flow how much runway have i got thinking the worst of like if we do no deals everyone cuts the tap off which in March, like jobs were getting pulled, stars were getting kicked, like that was kind of what I was preparing for. And I'd massively exposed ourselves by in my kind of yeah. keenness to, to get debt free. Um, so I had to make some pretty kind of, I guess, tough decisions at the time. The toughest one was that I just kind of put commission on hold. So I had everyone in the room, like the, 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 the kind of the, the night before we were full lockdown everyone's going to work from home and everyone's taking the stuff out i had, I had to literally grab everyone into the into the kind of meeting room in runways and just be like again transparency like we need runway so we need to prepare for the worst that's happened unfortunately i'm going to just put commission on hold i'm not going to i will pay it to you i promise you'll get it but i'm going to put it on hold now so any future starters over this period from march onwards anything that's owed in that pay slip is, is ultimately going to be held until we hopefully come out the other side and you know at that time we were probably thinking it was going to be weeks obviously it played out and very different as we all know so yeah that was a tough conversation that was a tough evening i got back to um the kind of multi-story car park about eight o'clock that night with all my stuff and i was just literally sat in the car crying it was brutal um yeah. telling people that and i had a, a message from jack that guy was, was kind of talking about it was like sick fire and he was like tough call mate but i think the right call obviously the bigger picture is the business is still here we've still got a job at the end of this not that we've got our commission and um, i think that's what like, triggered, triggered me off basically so yeah that was absolutely the most brutal time ever but then in reality kind of april card may come and that's where we struggled and that's where our kind of numbers certainly took a dip so so, so march to may we like beyond May, we were coming out the other side and it was like, actually, we can cope work from home. 
people are now hiring like obviously all companies then start to relax a little bit realize this was going on like life went on kind of thing so we ended up paying everyone back everything that was outstanding off the top of my head like june july time and we were like all systems go we were just working remotely so like so people's response to that was like was incredible in hindsight when you look back at it but yeah was yeah tough. and what was your previous to the pandemic had you ever worked remotely it was the business did you have any home working in the business um yeah we've, we've always been like flexible to people but i think in reality obviously we were at the time like still a very young business and like single figure probably largely headcount at that time maybe like certainly 10 11 12 people so people wanted to come into the office like people would probably like yeah. maybe one day a week be from home but reality people wanted to be in so yes we were always flexible but reality very few people took it and yeah my mindset was probably I'd rather people in than, than from home at, at that time in truth and um, so i was probably caught off guard a little bit in terms of how well we did start to perform from may onwards like working remotely and as i said we've, we've continued with totally flexible people work where they want to in reality now so that's what i was going to ask what what is the model like now and how do you manage it because it sounds i don't actually know that much about your business but you strike me as probably just the brand it's, it's a very modern looking business right so you strike me as a business that have evolved well what was it what is it like now how do you run it just totally flexible so people yeah we don't dictate we're well we're totally flexible we've got some people do five days a week from home um just start work from home, prefer it, like it, you crack on if you perform and you, you, you carry on work from home. I would say on average, people are probably three days in, two days from home or some sort of combination of that, but we don't take, say, you've got to be in Monday to Friday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, go and work from home, like, not bothered what, whatever days. As long as people are performing and happy, I ultimately don't give a shit whether you're in home, on holiday, in the office, wherever you're working, and it doesn't really impact me. No. Do you... Do you still have to have an office or office capability for 50 people? Have you had to provide uh, um, We're right at that point now. So we, we're on well, we're our fifth office now. So at the moment, our Bristol office sits 38 people, and we're, we're over that. So we're, we're kind of right at that cusp of that challenge of, like, we're hot desk in reality. But because we're so flexible, it's rare that our office is probably two-thirds full in reality. It never, ever happens where everyone's in on the same day. We, we just don't want to. So we use, like, we've got Charlie, we use Charlie HR as our, our yeah. HR software, and we just get people on a Sunday night. We're still flexible because things change day to day, obviously, but ultimately our kind of focus is on a Sunday night, booking what you're doing that week so that, for example, like our manager, like our per manager travels about an hour, 45 minutes into work. So there's only him doing that travel, getting in, and then none of his team are in the office. So... We just dictate, like, let us know what you're going to do so then the managers, senior people can kind of plan around it um, yeah. for that reason. But again, like, things can change. You're still flexible within that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how we operate. So you just let us know what you're going to do so at least we know where people are, but we don't dictate where they've got to be. It's mad, isn't it? Because it genuinely does. I think office space is something that is so expensive, especially London and, and yeah. prime, prime cities in the UK. Now you can have a smaller, you can get away with a 30-man office with a 50-man business. Like I remember in 2015, I was working in recruitment with the insurance market and I, I placed a program manager with, I don't know if you know of Aon, the insurance business, but yeah. they, they did a move to the to the cheese grater in London in the city and they had a, I think it was like a 400-person team and a 200-man office that they'd move because the cost was so expensive. So they were trying to work out it was workplace transformation, like stand-up desks, hot desking routines. This was way before the pandemic. And when I, I remember trying to find someone to deliver that 
program for them was like hensy because no, it was so new, like especially in the insurance yeah. market. Now that's pretty standard, isn't it? Like you, yeah. everyone in one office, like we we have global WeWork licenses that people use when they want, and yeah. we meet a couple of times a year in reality. But that's that's yeah. like, as a group, as a big group, and it and it's not not had an impact whatsoever. Um, so what was what was last year like? Everyone says it was a record year. Right? I've not had a single client I spoke to that didn't enjoy 2021. Yeah. Can you tell us what was your year like? How did it, how did it all evolve? Yes, it's the same story basically. So we'd ah oh, these track of years last year twenty yeah. So twenty twenty, I'd set a target, the kind of pre-COVID thing. We were trying to do two point three million, ended up doing just over two. I realized the target in August to try and we were doing everything we could from August to get to two, and then having done that, we then set a target for twenty twenty one to do four mil on GP, um, wow. which at the time I set that people were thinking like we'd double it's it. A big jump. Yeah, it's a big old jump. And that's just never going to happen but yeah we ended up doing just shy of five million did like 4.87 or something crazy like that wow um so it's like a big old a big old jump it was 140 139 percent increase in gp we increased headcount by 109 percent we had 100 percent retention really proud of um of all of our 2021 hires like not a single person left within that year um, and we, we kind of top loaded a lot of those hires as well so they can have an impact on 2021 so yeah it was a Banner of the year, to be fair. Well, when you look back at 2021, and you, 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 why do you think it is it has been so busy, and why is it so busy? Like honestly, the pandemic, as you've said, like March, April, May, we all went through the same, but it did pick up. Like business picked up pretty quick from about July onwards, and yeah. I remember the early 2021 lockdown, which was pretty severe in terms of like we couldn't go out till April. But business was flying. Like it was fucking good. So why do you think this is so it is so good when the pandemic's impact was so short in terms of hiring restrictions? So there can't be that much of an over full like backlog of hiring because it was only yeah. three, four months in reality. Yeah, I suppose I think it's probably a combination of loads of different things. Like uh, people were hiring. So I think there's obviously loads of companies took advantage of the furlough stuff. So I think Yes, you can still do steady numbers, but maybe the volume went there because people didn't have the same capacity like within their business. But projects definitely did go on hold that have now kicked off for sure. Like we did a lot of our business, for example, on a contract side of things is public sector focused. So we were actually probably busier than, than ever from a contract side of things because we were placing people into track and trace and stuff like that, which was obviously please spend on that was mental. Still, still is, I think. Um, so like, I don't know, like it's just a combination of like loads of different factors. Like obviously lots of recruiters even were on furloughs, furloughs so like that demand in terms of people got doing those hires was, was was certainly less. But I don't know how in my head I'm surprised it's still yeah. it still seems to be going like that. In my head I was thinking this has got to stop at some point. And you know, I have conversations with people now saying oh, I think it's a carry for like two years, three years at least. Whereas in my head I was thinking probably like two months, three months. It's, Kind of my, probably my pessimistic look on things, but yeah, still absolutely mad. The, the market, the industry, the numbers. Like I used to say, every agency is like if you're not doing record months, pretty much month in month out, virtually you've probably got to be doing something wrong. I'd say at the moment. Yeah, there's an issue right now. It's mad. Yeah. It's literally mad. What um what was your approach to hiring last year? You talked about doubling headcount. Um, what type of people were you going after? What was your strategy? Because obviously, the I've again, there's a lot of loyalty. You'd expect a lot of loyalty to have been built with businesses in the pandemic if they kept them on 
through the but there'd, there'd also be the offside of that where some people weren't yeah. treated to it. how did you find that um so i guess our, our plan in terms of our second job piece like continued that's all that's always been the focus so i think it's probably more companies that maybe got support in their staff and can you know, care about a team probably wrong than they got right i think so yes there are some people that you know create increased loyalty because of how they were treated during the pandemic but i think there were probably as many if not more people that maybe weren't treated so well in terms of like you know lots of agencies made you know, fair few redundancies or you know furlough pay for example if people were put on furlough pay and maybe weren't topped up 100 there's, there's lots of little things where you know, people, people our business owners maybe made decisions that in hindsight perhaps wouldn't have made so i think yeah well, our our focus continued in terms of that second job piece um you know, we, we've never really struggled in terms of hiring experienced recruiters in, in reality. Like even like Q1 this year, was the stats for a leadership meeting last week, and we've hired 16 people in Q1. What was it, 12 or 13? I think 13 of those 16 people are experienced hires. 12 of those hires have been direct as well. We don't, I don't even have an internal recruiter. So it's crazy numbers in terms of experienced hires won't come and work for us. We've never touched in touch with that continues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we haven't struggled to get experienced people into our business. It just just happened. That that is a massive, massive point. Like everyone I talk to says, it is a nightmare. It's so difficult. And so, what what do you think it is? The brand you've built and that message, the social socially responsible message, is that much changing it for you? Um, I think it's a huge factor. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think like for me, I just my my aim and kind of build the business from from day one. It's like you're trying to build a, a trying to build a business you would want to work in yourself. And if you're kind of strategic about that and actually take a step out and think, like, actually, you know, if I was to leave, why, you know, why would I leave? What sort of a business would I want to join? And then, you know, that's ultimately what you're trying to create. So I think, yes, you know, our brand's powerful. We've, we've got a clear purpose. We're one of eight B Corp certified agencies in the whole of the UK. What is it? So tell me through the, about this certified certification. I, I, I honestly don't know much about it. Cool. So, so B, B Corp's like the stamp of approval that you're using your business as a force for good, effectively. So you've got to you've got to be a profit making company. It's not it's not based on the kind of charity or third sector, um, but it's effectively the stamp of approval that you're using your business and you care about the environment. You're you know, socially conscious. You give back, and you're using your business as more of a vehicle, not just to make loads of profit and make as much money as possible. You're actually giving back to your communities that either you operate in or you work within, you you care about your supply chain, et cetera. So it's a really rigorous process for us. It took 18 months to get the certification. So it's not like you don't just apply, you get the stamp of approval and then happy days. Like it's a really rigorous process where they'll literally get under the hood of everything from start to finish. So I guess like big B Corps that everyone would know, like the body shop, like Patagonia, Brew dog, maybe not a company recruiters like gravitate towards yeah. them. You got certified, they do loads of stuff from a sustainability, net carbon zero, etc. So, those type of businesses, those are the type of businesses I look at and, and, and certainly respect. And so, it meant a lot to us to, to get that. So it took 18 months, it's a rigorous process. They will literally get under the hood of everything and anything. So, what can you give me some examples of what you do that helped you achieve that certification? Yeah, so we give, I mean, the standout things for us would be we give 5% of our profits to charity. So in our first four years as a business, we've, we've given over £130,000 to charity, which is mental. Amazing. 
Um, we do volunteering with that charity. So I think it's like 550 odd hours as a business. We've, we've given back volunteering. Is it um, one charity you always support or do you keep changing that? Um, so it, the concept was we changed the charity every 12 months. We've, we've worked with four different charities. Now when COVID hit, we stuck with the same one for a period of time because it just felt like the right thing to do. So we've done effectively how it worked with team was uh, like give recommendations to some of the charities they're interested in or want to support or care about or they give a cause and then obviously operationally we would then go out and try and find decent charities having some impactful work within that cause so for their example as and within fixed at five percent as our business grows as our profits grow obviously our donations should go as well so in the last 18 months alone we've given like two charities nine nine just just shy of 100 grand basically it's like 98 wow. Amazing. Just a mad amount of money. So it's like the last contribution we gave them was literally like fit. We had a check for like 35 grand, which was like just a cover of six month period. So, like, that's powerful. Like, we had the CEO of one of those chips. We had two children's charities. We got them in for a meeting and for a catch up on, on all things. You know, surprised them with a check for 35 grand. And you've literally got the CEO of a charity in our office in front of the whole business in tears so it's like that is more powerful than any achievement any recruiter is going to do in terms of banging in you know see people banging in three four five deals in a day and everyone's like whooping and hollering like that will never top having yeah. a charity in your office in tears because of what you've been able to do and the impact it can have for them like it's powerful stuff so, so who are you working with right now who's your, who's your charity partner right now so we're, we worked with them, we finished our relationship with those in the end of 2021. So we've been slightly up in the air. So we were trying to focus on a sustainability charity or an environmental charity. So we are still on the hunt for that in, in and around Bristol. Um, so what we've said in Q1, we're gonna donate back to Ukraine. Um, right. Just do that. So it ultimately, A, clearly it's very topical and, and the right thing to do in the current period of time. Um, but it also gives us a bit of breathing space to kind of identify who's our charity partner going to be for the kind of final nine months of 2022, basically. So, yeah, these should be meaningful contributions. I would hope, certainly my aim this year, 2022 alone, is that we can give over 100 grand. And that will take us to like 230 grand in our first five years, which is mental. Amazing. And what is there anything else apart from giving away money? Is there any other activities you're doing to be more sustainable or? Uh, so we do loads of volunteering, we looked at our supply chain, so our benefits package is kind of connected to other B Corps, so we won't, as a business, for example, work, we're really picky in terms of clients that we will and won't work with, so we won't ever work with any kind of non-ethical, like gaming companies, gambling companies, anything that's like a bit murky as a, as, as a client, we just won't work with them, we'd always kind of put the brand over a quick win of a few deals, etc., regardless of how, you know, how much business they offer us. Yeah. And, it's always those type of companies that want to cry to become and, and work with us and partner with us exactly. So those kind of conversations of, you know, sorry, just doesn't fit with our ethos, that they happen more often than, than, than you'd think, to be fair. Um, that's kind of key for us. And obviously we can't be a socially responsible recruitment company if we're then going working with a gaming income, gambling company just doesn't, doesn't fit with the brand. So we'd always kind of, the brands take the priority over anything else always. Do you know what though? That Obviously we, we, we're coming at it from slightly different angles but like for me branding has always been you know the the one thing i've promoted and it's what i do for a living and some people still don't get it like they don't get how powerful a recruitment your brand can be both personally and professionally and and what impact it can have they just negate they, they neglect it for complete sales activity consistently and they wonder why like you say no one wants to work for them they wonder why it's consistently a slog to to attract people and it's because yeah. no one no one's got any 
any real reason to want to work. No one knows about you. No one's got that positive. There's no feeling they get when they look at you. Like, I don't know a lot about your business, but you, you, it does stand out. You know, the brand stands out. What you, the message. I don't know anyone else that's in the same space. So yeah. it's worked, mate. It's really worked, I think. And you should be proud of that. What What's driving the move to London now? So you've, you're looking at, you said Austin's on the horizon, London's right now. What's, what's the expansion about? Um, I guess different talent pools. We were, I guess, driven also by, so we do like a quarterly engagement survey um, with, the, with the business just to kind of temperature check stuff and, 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 and things that come out of there in terms of, you know, would we ever open an office in London? So there was a certain feeling within the business that people had an appetite to move to London and we, you know, fundamentally just explored those conversations you know, one or two people actually went to like five or six people like actually I would, I would always love to do it if you know if there was an opportunity then let's do it and i think i'm just really keen to prove that what we've done in bristol could work in different cities as well so yeah absolutely kind of made sense so the, the kind of the feedback to actually say yeah let's do it and kind of sign in a lease and, and get confirmation was literally like three months i'd say max between between doing it so we opened in you know, Jan, I'm in the London office today. We're up to 15 headcount in London, 14, 15 headcount in London already. Um, in, in and is it is it a different market focus as well, or does it is it are they like cross cross functional teams that all work together, just based in different places? Yeah, basically, yeah. So what the kind of aim of the game is London office will do kind of within the M25, and we'll just kind of ring fence it that way. And then the Bristol office will do the Southwest, and, and clearly Austin will be doing US stuff in Austin. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that, that's the plan. That's the focus. There's no kind of crossover. We, we've already got a really good client base in London anyway, so it's not like we were going in completely cold and completely blind. So there's, you know, it's, it's been pretty seamless. We're just kind of we're moving. Some people have obviously relocated and, and moved their life up to London, but yeah, we've got more London local people that already live in there. We've attracted into the business in the first three months, and again, continuing on that kind of second job um, target. What's been the again the you know the key question the challenges but what what is the hardest thing you, you've noticed so far about having two different locations the, the the added complexity like what what's what's been different um i think we i certainly had an i've obviously i did london with opus and back in 2012 so hiring is a very different beast like bristol's so incestuous and quite a small market as well so it's like really easy to be like referencing people off the record you know, like i'm pretty confident i know like i know the good people i know the good companies I know what you know where's good stock so it does make hiring a little bit easier in terms of like taking less risks and knowing know what you're getting effectively london's obviously a very different beast and equally our brand and our presence is not what it was you know bristol we've got you know really good brand at the stand up we've got people, people presence people that are our type of people are going to know us in bristol whereas that's not going to be the case in london so there's a lot of unknown from a hiring point of view is my main concern in terms of actually how's the brand going to land in, in london are we going to attract those experienced recruiters and could we do adopt the same model in terms of scaling it so that's certainly been i guess finding our feet with that you know is it, it is a different place i think we've probably done a lot more interviewing in london than we would have to do in bristol and um, to identify those type of people right. but we've still been able to attract you know, experienced people on that kind of second job path and you know hire some great people in london already and i feel pretty confident that you know, even in the first three months, I feel confident that we're, we're going to continue on the same model and we will keep attracting those type of people. So it's, it seems to have landed pretty well, or is it certainly better than I would have hoped um, in the short Love it. What's your life like now as a as a outsider work and the, the balance between the two offices and like describe your 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 ecosystem personally? 
yeah, so I've, I've got two little girls. So I've got a, a one-year-old or kind of 20, 21 months and a, and a five-year-old. Obviously, I'm married. And my wife doesn't work. She looks after, after the kids full-time, yeah. um, which, which massively helps, certainly, just in terms of home life. So I try and, in a dream world, I would say I'd do one or two days a week from home and three split across Bristol and London. So I'll typically, I'm always in London on a Wednesday, do at least one day a week when I'm physically in London. I can do more if need to be. Um, but yeah, in reality, I probably end up doing, I've, re- I've rarely worked from home. I worked from home yesterday, actually having a one-year-old running around the house is not, it's, it's not that practical for me. In reality, she's screaming her head off and tend not to get that much done. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm in the office like five days a week, just split across Bristol and London, but like, you know, largely Bristol, it's a, it's a bigger office. We've got some experienced people like Marius you know, runs our whole contract team. He's London, he made the move. So kind of building the contract function around him. Alicia's just made the move to London uh, as of as of last week, she's building up a perm function. So they've been in the business for you know, pretty much from the outset, certainly in Alicia's case, they know the culture, they know what we're all about. I can trust yeah. them to come with it. And I don't, there's no point in me trusting them to go out and build it and then be breathing down the necks every single day because it's gonna kind of eat into what they're trying to do as well. I was trying to tap Marius up years ago, about eight years ago. He was, yeah. uh, I was in a candidate meeting in the insurance market and someone was like, I've just met a recruiter that reminds me of you and, he, and he's younger. And I was like, okay, who's this? And Marius Hurley Bennett is his name. Yeah. I remember he's such a Marius is a name I'd never heard of. So yeah. I got him on LinkedIn, messaged him. We went for a coffee in London and he was, he was in Bristol and he was interested in coming to London even then. Yeah, that was about two, I reckon that's 2015, 14, something like that. Um, so uh, it's good to see he's doing really well. I'll uh, I'll root for the guy. I like yeah, it. Um, and how do you do you are you finding time to to balance work and still spend time with the one year old and and have that quality time? Maybe putting them to bed or bath or any. Do you get those things done? Yeah, that is a battle. It really is a battle. I think I struggled certainly with my my eldest child because that was obviously said like when I started the business she was what she'd been like seven months old and yeah if I look at it and I'm kind of being brutal with my dad hat on I my relationship with her is, is great obviously clearly love it to bits and do everything I can for her but it's not as tight as I would like to because I think I've missed out on a lot of that stuff like there's all that kind of things you described because I was working like to the bone all hours under the sun i'm just constantly ingrained in it so i've kind of really tried to make a, a conscious decision like my second like my first child's definitely a mummy's girl for example is what i'm trying to yeah. say the second child is a daddy's girl so that's where that continues but i think that fundamentally that's been because i've made a conscious decision to be around be more present i do try my best to make sure like i've got a commitment that i'll do the school runs to my eldest at least once a week i can drop her in I can pick her up if I'm working from home once a week. So I do my best to try and do that. And then I'm really conscious of it with, with my little one. But in reality, I'm kind of leaving my house at 7 a.m. They are still in bed. Um, they go to bed at 6, half past 6. I'm not back. So yeah. you can literally go days you know, without seeing your own children, which is like horrendous in reality. Yeah. But my, my wife's very understanding. Like, I'm fortunate her dad was an entrepreneur, had his own business. Had a, had an event, exited his own business. He worked away, so kind of she's lived. She's always like lived around like, what's required. So she, you know, she's really sound with that sort of stuff. She's never said to me like, you, know, you need to like calm it down, stop working. She'll and I, reality, I'm probably really boring, but it's just constantly talking about work and stuff like outside of work conversations. I don't bring a lot to the table, so I'm, <laughs> I'm really conscious of like 
just stopped talking about work and stuff. But she, but she was telling me, she's like, like, pipe down before and hell out of me. <laughs> well, you look, you're trying to, I think it's interesting that you say her dad was like that because she's probably, she's already seen what it can do when you yeah. commit, you know? Yeah. Um, Whereas I didn't have that. I don't know about you, but I, I never had that role model of an, of an entrepreneur. I never, no one I knew. Um, and so, and, I, and my partner now, she's never had that. So, you know, I've moved in, I'm least recently moved in with a seven and eight year old and my partner. And, you know, so I'm coming in, at, they're already developed. Yeah. My dad's down the road. He's a good guy. They've got a good relationship with him. And I'm like playing, it's an interesting role, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, but, but again, the business I've got and the way I live my life is very different to what they expect they, they were used to. Yeah. And, and I reckon, you know, the way I get up and work and I'm, you know, I'm out and about running at 6am to get myself ready for the day. And yeah. I can see the impact I'm already having. They're asking me questions about like, why'd you do that? Why'd you do this? And yeah. they, leave me little mess- they leave me little messages in my home office whiteboard. And stuff. it's so funny. Like, like yeah. when are we going to see you again? And all these different things. <laughs> but I'm trying to, because I, I host an academy at four o'clock live on Zoom to like hundreds of recruiters where I'm teaching them about personal branding. That four, 4 p.m. is the time the kids come back from school if they're not at an after school club. And like it can be mental. So I've now took an office. I'm, go, I'm going there this afternoon just to get my headspace. My business is remote. There's no point in us, you know, two years, I was like, there's no point in an office. But now the life I have at home, yeah. I need that separation. I need somewhere to go that I can genuinely. Yeah. Not, like you said, screams, arguments, music, and they, and they need to be kids, you know. They need to have yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. to live it. What's your approach to like your own? So what you talked about is your family and you and work, and you're yeah. fucking clearly doing a great job of that. What about your own fitness, health, hobbies, friends? Like, how do you balance that? Have you got any routine or any structure around? Yeah, so I I'm very like conscious of it. I think I. I kind of get all in. I can, I can kind of almost like lose, lose myself in myself, kind of with stresses with work and stuff. So I think I'm pretty good at actually being conscious of the things I need to do from a personal point of view to make sure I'm feeling fresh and I've got a clear head and men, you know, mentally I'm where I need to be. So even like I lockdown two, we kind of made the investment at home and gutted the garage and turned that into a gym at home because I was not going to the gym like I always used to historically back in the day going back. When I was like late mid twenties, I was mad on a football, and then I'd, I had a knee injury, so I kind of completely stopped playing football after doing my cruise shirt. So I probably that was probably the time I really doubled down on work because I didn't have that distraction. I was kind of wanted to do football, so I was interested in work was probably secondary to that in reality, and that's probably the point where I maybe start to take my career a little bit more seriously, and that was the kind of number one choice. But I think I'm always very conscious, like. I went back even six months ago, my you know, missus again point and stuff. I was just like, you're drinking literally like every night now. And I'm not a big drinker, but it was like, go home, straight to the fridge, glass of wine with dinner, the menu, max like two glasses of wine, but then actually look back in a week on a Sunday. And she's like, you've literally drank like six days or every day this week or like six days. And I've never hung over. I get up and I do a run on the treadmill in the morning, but it just naturally starts to each like chip away at you. So yeah, it does. I have kind of intentionally, probably certainly in the last six months, made a conscious of naturally drink. If you drink six days a week, you're putting on a bit of timber as well. Your diet goes out the window. You, you know, I felt, I, at the time I probably felt good and I felt okay. But when someone points it out, then you're like, actually, yeah, I am putting on the timber. I'm not looking great. I'm, you know, not feeling myself. So I'm really conscious now about making sure I'm like at least on that treadmill three times a week. I've made probably some investments in terms of 
like personal investments. So I'd start doing a boxing PT every Saturday morning at seven o'clock. So okay. if I do that, I'm not going to drink on a Friday because, you know, he's punching me in the face at 7 a.m. on Saturday <laughs> with a hangover. So like little things like that, where I've, where I've, I guess, just invested in myself to make sure that I am kind of performing at my best and I'm able to makes a big difference. But I think fundamentally having a, having a wife that will point that stuff out to you because it's quite hard to see when it's you. Yeah. Um, that helps massively, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at the moment. So, I I can empathise with everything you said there. Similar to me, I think I I got on the scales at Christmas and I just felt crap. I, I think 2021 was a year where, you know, it was just a mad year for me. I, like you know, I moved house and moved in with the family, and all these things happened. And and I I definitely I wasn't drinking six nights a week, but there was definitely three maybe, and yeah. the weekend would be more and food was a bit shit and you know i didn't train as much and it just all can and i looked at christmas and i just thought i'm not right here. and that's when i've i started running i've mentioned it on every loads but today what did i do today it was my 84th i think yeah running day 84 you can see on my phone um yeah, that's and the 30th of the month every day and I feel brilliant now. I'm knocking it out. Only 3K, 4K, 5K a day, but knocking yeah. out every morning, seven days a week. Um, yeah, the impact, my brain is like, I'm on, I'm on like, it's like a drug or something in the morning. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for me, it's like the number one change that I've got to try. I mean, can I do it every day forever? Probably not, but I've got to yeah. keep that four or five day a week consistency. Yeah. have to. It makes so easy to lose it. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's such an obvious thing, isn't it? It's like when I... When I missed said that, I was like, right, I'm going to proper cut down and slap, cut it out. I went like four or five weeks, like not touching it. And literally like felt like, it sounds really obvious, obviously going to feel better, but like it's mental how much better you can feel yeah. and how much more on it, focused you are with your time and efficiency and stuff like that. So I'm like maybe once a week, max twice a week. Like, but as far as unions goes, like I'll have like a pint, pint and a half, absolutely yeah. max. Like, so you're talking like three pints a week or something like that. And I'm good. Yeah, same. I'm not uh, not that fussed anymore. What? So, final question then is where are you heading? So we talked about everything to, to, to today, today, your life, your business. It's you're in an amazing position, mate. And you know, hats off to you. So many people would want to be where you are right now, but I get the vibe with you that you've not even started. Like that's the you know what what's the what's the long term play? Where are you heading? Um, see, I, was, I absolutely feel like we haven't even kind of started yet. In reality, we're, we're like four years old, so. Uh, at the end of the game this year, and I kind of I necessarily don't really look beyond that at the moment. So at the end of the game, in terms of our target this year is to do eight million in GP. We've done just shy, like fifty grand shy of, depending on March billions that come through on a contract point of view, will will either be just shy or just over two million GP. So we're like on track to do eight million. My I think we can do eight and a half, if not nine, and kind of headcount target in my head. Want to get to seventy plus by the end of this year. So that's. A lot of that grade is going to come in London. We can fit 22 in the London office. If Bristol's already 38, 39 people. So, and then the US, we're opening like the second half of the year. So we're going to wrap that up towards the end of the year, naturally. So if we can get US to eight to 10 people by the end of the year, we get London to 22, 25. Bristol's always going to be like 45, 50 comfortably. So you know, straight away, you're talking 75 plus from a headcount point of view. And, I'm expecting the second half of the year. Like, our only game is like improve quarter on quarter. That's what we're constantly pushing, both individually, collectively as a team, etc. So we've now we six six quarters in a row where it's just improved. The numbers have got better and better and better. So we've, you know, we've done pretty much two million in Q1. If we can continue on that route and deliver on that promise, then we should be doing eight and a half, if not nine million. I reckon this year. I feel confident we'll do that. 
Wow. And do you have a long-term play to sell the business? Do you always see yourself in it? What's your kind of bit longer vision? Yeah, I mean, that, like, that's probably the, the long-term. I think it's probably everyone's long-term aim at some point, but I'm not naive to think that everyone wants to do that at some point. Yeah. Um, and not everyone does, clearly. So I think I, I just want to build the best recruitment brand possible. Not even recruitment brand. I just want to build a really good brand. And a byproduct of that is we'll grow, we'll do good numbers, and hopefully we'll become attractive to someone at some point. But I'm not like, I'm not interested in that. I'm not really motivated at all by money. I'm not really, it doesn't drive me. I'm more driven by just building a really good brand, really building a really good business I can be proud of. If you know, money and stuff will all come as a byproduct of that, I'd be, I'm, I'm much more interested in the, the I'm sure you're already at a point where you can do what you want to do, really. Like, you're not going to sit there, I imagine, and worry about what you're spending. You know, if you live in you, you were in Dubai when I was in Dubai in February, right? You probably yeah. stayed on the palm, you had a nice holiday. I looked at it like I, you know, I had two weeks on the palm, didn't really think about it. And I'm like, you know, I've got two kids, Lauren's out there with me. And I'm like, that's basically where what I have always wanted, you know, to be able to go on holiday, not worry about what I'm spending, didn't go mental, but we had a great time. That's enough for me, I think. Like, any more, I don't really want any more. Like, so it, I'm very similar. I'm not. I'm not striving to buy like a fucking private jet or something. Like, I don't really care. No. Like, and I think that I, I, I absolutely agree. But I think like it's quite a hollow for me. It's quite a hollow existence if you're just chasing money. Like if ever like interview people and they're just interested in like salary, basic salary, it's all about money. It just massively turns me off because I think like like numbers never end fundamentally. So where do you draw the line? You're never going to be happy. It's always someone that's going to earn more. You know, it doesn't matter how good your recruitment business is going to be. You're not going to be the richest bloke in the world. Someone's always going to be bigger. Someone's always going to be better. So it's like, you're never going to be happy. You're constantly going to like feeling like you're never enough or you need to keep going to do more. So it's like, as you said, for me, like, you know, we've given, I get far more excited. Like nothing will ever top that guy from the charity in our office in tears because of what we've been able to do. And there's no amount of money that would give me that same feeling as seeing and, and like being witness to that and kind of part of, of making that happen. But if you hit 8 million this year, you're making an even bigger difference to charity, right? So that's, yeah, exactly. you are, yeah, yeah. You, your top line number actually, it means the bottom line affects so much. Yeah. But, it's, but, that, but it's a byproduct of what we're doing as opposed to why we're doing it. If you know what I mean? We're not, yeah. we've got to hit 8 million because we need that to kick out this eBay and then that's going to make sure we like do that to charity. Yeah. It's not about that. So all, as you said, like from a money point of view, we've you know, given out 130 grand of our operating profit. That 130 grand to me, it's not going to materially change my life at all. Like in reality, it's not uncomfortable. I'm happy. My kids are happy. My family's happy. My wife's happy. I've got a nice home. It's not going to change my life. Whereas 130 grand to a charity will change a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And yeah. You know, why would you not do that if you can? Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. And you strike me as someone who just enjoys it. Like you're enjoying your job. You like you, yeah. you like you like you like your life. Like some people I've I've met. They're so fixated on an exit, but they're not happy. They're not enjoying it. Like they're fucking depressed because they're, they're all they're bothered about is this exit number they've got to hit. And I'm like, you yeah. could die next week. Like I'm, yeah. I'm literally, you know, I've just recorded an episode with Liam Thomas. His, his partner died of cancer while they're building the recruitment company for fuck's sake. Like listen to that and think, yeah. have your big goals, have your long-term plans. But if you don't enjoy coming to work, if you're not loving your own company, what's the point? Like, seriously. Yeah, exactly. My, my, we started using a non-exec like about nine months ago and that was like, his big thing. It was just like, just fucking, you got to enjoy it because this is like, it's a slog. It's not easy. It's a slog if, you, as you said, if you're not enjoying it. Like, why, why are you bothering? Like, in reality. Yeah. 
fuck it leave it but look chris we could talk all day mate been a pleasure really enjoyed it thank you so much for your time um if anyone wants to reach out to you if anyone's listened and wants to join the business or just wants to pick your brains um are you open to people just dropping your note on linkedin yeah 100 yeah absolutely cool. wicked and let's get you back on in the future and let's see how this socially responsible mission evolves over there I've, I've got every faith you're gonna you're gonna smash it cool thank you man appreciate it appreciate it cheers bud thank you as always for listening to today's show i truly truly hope that you got value from it that's the only reason i take time every week is to ensure that my audience future and existing recruitment owners are learning from each other to make this industry that i love so much stronger today's episode was brought to you by hoxo media I am the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media, and we are the world's leading content marketing and personal branding agency for recruitment businesses specifically. So we are working with over 200 agencies and 2,000 recruiters right now, both managing the brands, producing content, building written video podcast content for niche recruitment agencies all over the world, as well as coaching at a desk level individual recruiters in your businesses, how to be better on LinkedIn. That's how to brand themselves. That's how to produce content. That's how to use the opportunity on LinkedIn to get traffic to their profiles and turn that into business. We're coaching people all over the world every single day. If any of that sounds of interest, please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me, Sean Anderson, a personal message on LinkedIn. and would love to talk to you. Tune in again next week. That's live on LinkedIn. I'll see you soon.